When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of those to the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabro. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, other half of the podcast. Well, it's our first Sunday without football, and um, it seems a little weird. Kevin's not right. I know we got to go through this for, what, the next six, six and a half months? It's going to be a while, because I know we have training camp in, what, late July, then the preseason game start in like mid-August. And then the regular season doesn't start until like the first week of September. So we're going to be in it for the long haul. But despite that, we still have plenty to go over within the NBA. And we also will start, still talk a little bit about NFL because we always find something to talk about within the NFL. So we got a pretty solid agenda for you guys. Uh, Kev, I know, uh, I know it's been a long day for uh, both of us, I know. You were busy with uh, Disney this weekend, and uh, I was just busy with work, but uh, got a couple items to knock out on the agenda. You ready to go through this? Absolutely. All right. So first things first, we'll start within the NBA. Obviously, the biggest thing from this weekend in the NBA were the NBA All-Star festivities. Uh, first couple of days, pretty much focused on the celebrity game. Saturday, we saw the skills competition, the three-point contest, and the dunk contest. And then Sunday night, it wrapped up with the All-Star game, which, to be quite honest with you, it was just guys running around playing no defense whatsoever and just guys just jacking up shots left and right. So uh, we'll talk about the All-Star game because obviously that's the biggest event of the weekend from within the NBA. And we'll talk about just the game as a whole. After that, uh, Kevin and I will go over some teams that are on the cusp of potentially making the playoffs as it stands right now. So... We'll pick some teams that are currently in play-in tournament situations or scenarios. And Kevin and I will pick three teams from each conference that will make the playoffs or will not make the playoffs. So we'll kind of do something a little bit different. But Kev will cover the Eastern Conference and I will cover the Western Conference uh, in those scenarios. After that, we'll kick it to the NFL side of things where we'll talk about Eric Bieniemy becoming the offensive coordinator for, for the Washington Commanders. So he moves on from his tenure at the Kansas City Chiefs as their offensive coordinator, and he will take his coaching talents to Washington to try to build something significant there. After that, we will pretty much wrap up the episode with our offseason fixes. We've been doing these segments over the last couple of weeks. We will continue that trend. Uh, the two teams that we're going to go over in today's episode are going to be the New York Giants and the Jacksonville Jaguars. Both of these teams were both eliminated in the divisional round. Obviously, the Jags had this massive comeback against the Chargers in the wild card round. Uh, the Giants advanced to the divisional round where after the wild card round, I mean, they smacked up the Vikings pretty well, but. I'm drawing a blank to who they lost to in the uh, division. The Eagles. Round. They got smoked. Uh, that's probably a part of it because what was it like 38 to seven? 
something was, like that. Yeah, it was. I was a runaway game, but uh, we'll focus on those two teams to round out the episode. But without further ado, we will transition to the NBA All Star Game festivities. So, pretty much like I said at the top, uh, the NBA was really focused on the NBA All Star Game this past weekend. Um, celebrity game took place Friday. Dunk contest, three point competition took place on Saturday, and the all-star game itself took place on Sunday night. Uh, just to kind of give you guys the score of the game, mind you, the uh, the score totals are rather large, so kind of indicates where we're going to go with the segment. Team Giannis won by the score of 184 over Team LeBron, who scored 175 points. I believe Jason Tatum dropped over 50 points in that all-star game, which is the new record uh, in the all-star game. An impressive performance from him. But, um, Kev, we were watching this game as it was pretty much wrapping up in the fourth quarter. And it was pretty apparent to me that there was zero defense being played by either team. And a lot of the shots were just being jacked up for the hell of it. And, you know... This is not the first time that Kevin and I have talked about the All-Star game in the NBA in this manner. We have talked about this a couple of times in the past. The only time where we may have not talked about it in such a pessimistic light was, I think, the All-Star game after Kobe had passed away, where you could tell that the competitive level of that game was definitely higher than in years past and is most was most certainly higher than than what it is now. It seems to have regressed to the point where it was pre-Kobe passing away. But, you know, with the score being 184 to 175, kind of indicates there was no defense being played whatsoever. So, Kev, honestly, I only have one way to phrase this to you about the All-Star game, so I'll, I'll just lay it to you like this. Do you think that the players of the modern-day game are ruining what the NBA All-Star game is supposed to be? I mean, when you think of what an all-star game is, similar to the Pro Bowl, it is the best assimilation of players at that point of the season. Now, I know that the Pro Bowl is at the end of the year, but I mean, with the all-star game taking place three quarters of the way through, it's basically the best players in the league, right? These are the best players in the world going up against each other, barring any injuries or things like that, you know, choosing not to play because of, you know, limit restrictions or whatever the case may be. But when you have the best players in the world, just tossing crap up it, it it doesn't i don't know it's it's not as appealing as it used to be like we know that in the all-star game it was always the first three quarters were to mess around pull up from all over the court alley-oops crazy things funny things you know what i'm saying like not a lot of defense being played and the fourth quarter everybody really stepped it up because it was like you know i know that nowadays a lot of these teams are playing for charities and like now it's not east versus west it's the two leading vote getters who are the captains and all these things right but for me, it's like the fact that we left the Eastern West thing and made it a political, like, I want this person on my team. I want that person on my team. Like, to me, it just became kind of stupid. And it was like, just have the best against the conferences. And the fact that all these proceeds go to charity, these are, it's great, but nobody's playing any defense. It was, I think, the first to go to 182 won the game. And obviously, you know, Giannis goes to 184 because they hit a three with 181. So obviously that's why it went a little over. But I mean, if, if people are just sitting here throwing up shots, right? Like Damian Lillard was eight of 20 from the three-point line. Like, I, again, I understand it's not meaningful basketball, but there's no defense being played here. It's not fun to watch. Like people are just 
walking down the lane, throwing a layup up. They're throwing the ball down the court the other side. They're jacking up from half court. They're jacking up from three-quarters court. They're just they're laying the ball up. Nobody's really like getting at it in front of the other people. And again, I know the All-Star game is supposed to be for fun, but when you play against the best talent, you want to see some kind of defense. And that's why I used to love the All-Star game's fourth quarter because it was just, I'm not going to let you beat me in this quarter. This is where I got to tighten up. And it just... Again, since they changed it to uh, to like vote getter, like leading vote getters from east to west, I think that the All Star Game finally went downhill. Um, it changing the point system rather than it just being like who has the most points by the end of it, it it, it being capped off capped off at one eighty four. Again, another reason why I don't like it. Um, All Star Games just haven't been the same since we were younger. I mean, it's just it, there's no intensity behind it. There's no what looks to be. There's no. Uh, comp- there's no competitive edge behind it. It's just lay up, toss the ball, throw something up, hope it goes in. I mean, Jason Tatum scoring 55 in a no-defense all-star game isn't necessarily something that's entertaining for me. At least, again, in my personal opinion, it's not something that I would waste time watching. I wouldn't fly out to the to, to the location to watch this. We already know the skills challenge and the three-point contest and the dunk contest aren't what they used to be. So it's like every single event that takes place at the all-star game is pretty crap. And I think that's why everybody's advocating for um, a king of the hill kind of tournament, like one-on-one, to who's, who's the best one-on-one player in the NBA. I think that would do a lot better than some of these other alternative games and even shit better than this, this All-Star game. Because again, from, just from what we saw, I cannot express to you is half-ass jogging down the court, an attempt to swipe away at the ball, and then getting ahead the, to the other side of the court without playing any defense a bucket goes in, and it's just a, it's just a hail mary toss down the other side, and someone's pulling up from thirty feet, someone's throwing it up in alley oop, someone's throwing up a wild a wide open windmill. It's not fun. It's not entertaining to watch. Like it, it's it's genuinely like to me, it's almost like a waste of time. I'm not here to watch people take practice shots. I'm not here to watch people warm up. I'm here to watch the best of the best play against one another. And yes, again, it is for fun. But when you take none of it serious. It's just, it's not entertaining for me. And I think that that needs to change. And Kev, I mean, this is not just exclusive to the NBA. I mean, this is something that we've seen in the NFL. I mean, when it comes to the Pro Bowl, they don't even have a Pro Bowl anymore. Now it's the Pro Bowl games. And honestly, that's just kind of where I see the NBA eventually going to. Because, you know, the way that I see it is these guys, like you had just outlined, they're just not taking it seriously. Now, I'm not saying that these guys have to go balls to the wall competitive and you have to give it 100, 110% in an all-star game setting. No. But, I mean, is it like that difficult to go from, okay, like 80, like 80% competitive, like make it somewhat interesting? But when guys are jacking up shots with no defense whatsoever from 30 to 40 feet and they're just doing it just to do that, I don't really see the fun in it. And honestly, the the amount of people that would spend money to actually go to an all-star game and just watch these guys just jack up shots for, what, 48 minutes of game time, that's a waste of money as far as I'm concerned. So when it comes to the all-star game, I think eventually what I think is going to happen is more than likely, I think players are going to move on from this idea of actually playing a physical game, and they may just make it like an all-star break. You know, the, t- the teams um, 
that are assembled for the all-star game, they'll just be guys that are just the all-stars from each conference. They may compose them into a team or something like that, but outside of that, maybe they'll just turn it into a vacation type thing where you'll have a technical all-star break. You'll be off for a couple of days and then you get back to it for the last third of the season. But outside of the dunk contest, I don't really watch anything related to the NBA all-star weekend. I mean, obviously I know the NBA spends a bunch of money to host these all-star games every single year. And I don't know what, the ratings are going to be from this all-star game in particular, but you know, just based off of where the ratings have been going with these types of games over the last couple of years, they have been pretty mediocre and no wonder if guys are just going to be very nonchalant the entire game. And it's just kind of a walk through the park and no one's playing any defense whatsoever. And there's no competitiveness that's being displayed on the court they're not going to be able to hold any viewers to watch that game. And honestly, they don't have any reason to at that point. So it just, I remember all-star games being at least somewhat competitive in the fourth quarter, like you said, Kev, but that's not the case anymore. Outside of the one all-star game after Kobe had passed away, it kind of has looked like what we saw on Sunday night. Guys just, going through the motions, jacking up shots, and then just pretty much trying to get to the end of the game. That's pretty much it. And there's no really entertainment value in that anymore. And I know it's a very pessimistic view of the All-Star game, but when there's no competitive spirit in the game, it's not really worth it to me. So, you know, I, I was watching some other things throughout the weekend, in regards to the All-Star Weekend, I thought the skills competition was kind of weak. The three-point contest was a little bit fun. The dunk contest was essentially saved by Mac McClung. And the All-Star game was pretty much a waste of time. So, yeah, when it comes to the All-Star game, it was just mediocre. And mediocre may actually be putting it in a positive light. It was just a waste of time as far as I see it. But I think eventually... The NBA is going to follow suit with what the NFL did when it when it comes to the All-Star game. I think they're basically going to do it as like a weekend of games. And when it comes to an actual game, I think that part will be completely removed. And they'll do something else. Just because I don't think guys are really into it anymore. And it's unfortunate because when you collect all this talent into one basketball court, you know, from an NBA fan perspective, you want to see the best of the best play somewhat competitively in friendly competition. And the players aren't just going out there and doing that. And it's unfortunate because, you know, these all-star games could be a lot more fun than, than what they're actually turning out to be. And I honestly don't see it changing anytime soon. And like I said, I think they'll probably just get rid of the game itself and probably just limit it to the little contest that we see take place on like Friday and Saturday. So, Honestly, I'll just leave it at that. It's sad again, but 
you know, it is what it is. You know, final point here before we move on to our next segment. Kyle and I aren't sitting here asking for you guys to play all pro, all NBA defense, you know, diving for loose balls. Yeah. Like- um, playing press from, you know, from from inbound all the way to the other side. It's the, the fourth quarter was always the most fun to watch for those that remember. It was because someone didn't want to get cooked. They didn't want to be the reason why their conference lost. And now that it's kind of just broken up into political, like, well, I like playing with this guy or like, you know, like, I think this guy's really cool. Like on paper, LeBron James's team should have absolutely smoked Giannis's team. And that's just not what happened. Um, nobody caring takes away from the entertainment aspect because that gives nobody incentive to say, I want to watch this game. If two teams are playing against one another, yes, it's a competitive sport. And I use air quotes here, competitive. Um, you want to see who comes out on top. You want to see who's got the better team. But when both teams give no shits of defense, it, it takes away from that like emphasis or like that desire to want to actually enjoy it. So again, I just wanted to make that final point. No reason to kind of beat around the bush in circles. We do kind of want to keep this going in the NBA. And uh, Kyle and I are going to try something a little bit different. So Kyle, I'm going to pass the floor over back to you. Yeah, so the idea is going to be pretty simple. So, Kevin and I are going to go over some current play-in tournament teams in each conference. So, uh, we'll pick three teams that are currently in play-in tournament scenarios. So, obviously, there's four seeds that would play in the uh, play-in tournament situation after the season ends. But Kevin and I will pick three. So, I'll kick three teams in the Eastern Conference. He'll kick me three teams from the Western Conference. And, you know, as, as far as I see it, you know, this is just something different. I don't think Kevin, I have ever even attempted this before, but it's something different. And it'll just be kind of interesting just to see how this whole scenario plays out. But um, the three teams from the Eastern conference are going to be, I have them listed right here, the Hawks, the wizards and the Raptors. So just to start the segment out, Kev. So we've got some play in tournament teams. As of right now, I'll start with the Hawks. Do you believe the Hawks have a chance to make the playoffs this upcoming postseason? Uh, the Hawks, I'm going to go with no, because Trey Young has been very inconsistent in terms of field goal efficiency. Um, DeJounte Murray has emerged as the second fiddle and potentially on some nights, even the first option. So I would say just... No, based on what I've seen from the Hawks this season, and then the issues that Trey Young has also done off the court with issues with their head coach, Nate McMillan. Now, as it stands right now, when it comes to the Washington Wizards, they are the ninth-seeded team in the Eastern Conference right now. Now, do you believe that they would advance past the play-in tournament situation and make the playoffs? I would say Washington is my favorite option out of the three, mainly because I believe that the three-headed assimilated team that they have right now with Kyle Kuzma's emergence this year and how efficient he's been. Chris Dapps Porzingis has been available a lot more than he has in recent history, and he's shown that he can shoulder the load uh, when Bradley Beal is out. But with Bradley Beal being healthy at this moment in time, all three players are going to be able to play at a high clip, and I think that that's going to be the reason why they push towards uh, a postseason berth. And then the last team is the 10th seeded Raptors. They are a sub 500 team in the Eastern Conference. We literally just did a short about them being one of the more disappointing teams in the NBA this year. But their chances to potentially make the playoffs are still in play. And as of right now, they would be a play in tournament team at this current moment in time if 
they were able to hold Pat. So uh, the question is, do you think the Raptors have a chance to be able to not only make the playing tournament situation, but actually advance past that and make the postseason? So I'm going to go with no, but I will preview that with there are some good players on this roster. Fred Van Fleet is having an off year, obviously, but we know what he can do because he was a part of that 2019 championship team. We know Pascal Siakam is an all-star. We understand that uh, Gary, what is it? Gary Trent Jr. is a, is a, is a sniper from three. Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi are two young, talented wing players. But when it comes to them playing well together... It just hasn't shown for me at a, at a consistent and at a consistent enough clip. There are nights where they take time off, and it looks like they just have no absolute desire to want to play together or just want to play at all. And then there are nights where they all look incredible. So until they show me some consistency, I'm gonna have to go with no. So as it stands right now, like the last two seeds that would advance to the Eastern Conference in your mind would be the Miami Heat. I know that was not one of the teams that we talked about because are you of the mindset that they're going to make the playoffs? Absolutely, especially with the acquisition of Kevin Love, giving them depth at the four or the five, depending on where you want to put him, his ability to shoot and rebound. I think that that's going to help them in their depth uh, to make a postseason run for sure. And you think the Wizards would make it simply just because you believe in, I guess, the star power of Bradley Beal and Kyle Kuzma to kind of carry the way for them and to KB, potentially make the playoffs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that'd be a pretty good, you know, seven and eight seed to kind of round out the playoff format in the Eastern Conference. I mean, obviously, you know, you look at the top end of the Eastern Conference, it's just absolutely stacked. But the teams at the bottom, they wouldn't be the worst picks as far as I see it. They could definitely make some of those games competitive against the higher seeds in the Eastern Conference. But um, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out uh, now that we're essentially in the last third of the NBA season. So, Kev, now that the Eastern Conference is over with, let's focus on some of the Western Conference teams that are in playing tournament situations right now. Yeah, without a doubt. So similar to what Kyle did, I will add a fourth team here just because it's such a tight race. I mean, it is a literal two-and-a-half game spread between the 7th and 10th seed. So, Kyle, there are four teams here. The 7th seed right now as it stands are the New Orleans Pelicans. The eighth seed currently right now are the Minnesota Timberwolves. The ninth seed are the Golden State Warriors. And the tenth seed is the Oklahoma City Thunder. So I'll go one at a time like you did with me. Do you see the New Orleans Pelicans making a postseason appearance this year? I'm going to say no. And the reason why is fairly simple. is It comes down to Zion not being on the court. I don't think that they make it. And once again the injury bug has plagued Zion. And I see it as this. If Zion is on this team consistently, game in and game out, you know they would have a very good chance to potentially be six, maybe even a five seed in the Western Conference, especially with how jam-packed the Western Conference is this year. But with him potentially not being on the court, I think his void is so significant you know, going up against some other teams in the Western Conference, like the Timberwolves, the Warriors, and even the Thunder, I think they could find themselves on being outside of that playoff tournament situation and potentially miss the playoffs. But if he is there, it does make a world of difference. But to me, everything is predicated around Zion. 
But if I had to say right now, just based on the fact that he's not playing currently, I'm going to say no. All right, then Minnesota Timberwolves. Uh, obviously, they went and they made some moves, getting rid of D'Angelo Russell and acquiring Mike Conley. Um, Carl Anthony Towns has been in and out of the lineup the last couple of weeks. And, of course, you know, you have the star-studded, super high-flying, um, oh, my God, I almost Anthony said Edwards. Anthony Bennett. Anthony Edwards. I knew it was an Anthony. Do not say Anthony Bennett. I Shame said I almost, I know, I know. Shame, Shame on, on me for sure. But do you see the Timberwolves making the playoffs with this younger roster? I actually have more faith in the Timberwolves uh, making the playoffs this year than I outlined with the Pelicans. And Kevin, honestly, I'm just going to keep it fairly straightforward. I think with their roster currently constructed, obviously, like you said, uh, they were involved in some trades before the trade deadline. I think this is definitely a playoff contending team. Now, how far they'll get, I have no idea. But when I look at the roster of Anthony Edwards, Rudy Gobert, Jaden McDaniels, Kyle Anderson, Mike Conley Jr., this is a decent roster. And, you know, I, I understand things in the Western Conference are very tight right now. And if they play their cards right, they may be able to skip the play-in tournament entirely and maybe actually make a sixth seed. You know, it's not impossible for that to actually happen. But I think as of right now, as long as they don't have any major injuries to any of their star players, I think this is definitely a playoff contending team for sure. The defending champion... Golden State Warriors, Steph's been injured, Draymond's been injured. There's been a couple of different issues here in Golden State. So what are your thoughts on the defending champs having a play in the play-in tournament following a championship? I think it's a real possibility. Um, I think at this point with Steph having some pretty, I'm not going to say significant injuries, but lengthy injuries, I think that definitely puts their playoff chances in a little bit of a bind. But I imagine that Steph will be ready to go for essentially this crucial stretch here. I'd say, you know, we're in the last third of the NBA season. and I know he's still recovering right now, but I think once he gets back on the court and I think he adds some stability to that roster and, you know, what would come along with it is them winning a consistent amount of games. I think more than likely it would secure their place in a playing tournament situation and I'll be honest with you, once the Warriors get into a situation where they got to play on the line just to be able to make the playoffs, I, I'm i not going to bet against a lot of teams um, like the Warriors. The Warriors, they have championship pedigree. Obviously, this year has been a little bit more up and down than years past. And coming off of a championship last year, this is probably not the year that they were expecting. But I think they'll be able to make it the play-in tournament. And I think they would be one of those teams, too advance to the playoffs as well, similar to what I outlined with the Timberwolves. And finally, one of the younger teams, if not the youngest team in the NBA, led by SGA, another all-star, do you think that this young Thunder team can make the playoffs? I think when it comes to them, they're going to fall a little bit short. But as far as I see it, Oklahoma City has finally gained some traction. And Kev, like you said, with SGA getting his all-star appearance uh, this past all-star run, uh, it's well-deserved. There have been games where he's been just utterly dominant, dropping 30, 35, sometimes even 40-point performances. And I think Oklahoma City has positioned themselves pretty well for what's going to come over the next couple years. I think they're still a little bit young, and they're still 
kind of going through some growing pains. But the fact that they're this competitive in a pretty competitive Western Conference this year, I think they'll fall a little bit short. I think they'll make the play-in tournament. I think that's definitely an option for them. But I think if they have to go up against teams like the Timberwolves or the Warriors potentially in a play-in tournament situation, I don't favor them simply just because they don't have really any sort of playoff experience to work with. And unfortunately for them, I would find them on the outside looking in when it comes to the playoffs. I mean, obviously the Western Conference is pretty stacked. Um, it's a, I wouldn't say bold prediction to say Minnesota is going to make it, but I would say that based on how Mike Conley has been playing thus far, um, it's not looking too good. We know that Rudy Gobert has taken a significant dip uh, since he's gotten over to Minnesota. I think I would probably lean with personally um, New Orleans instead of Minnesota, but I do agree that Golden I, State will find a way to get it going. The only thing when it comes to New Orleans is Zion. No, I agree. I just think that B.I., McCollum, a couple of those other role players are going to find a way to at least make a significant run and push. I don't think Zion's going to be out for the remainder of the year. And once he's inserted back into this lineup at a healthy clip, I think that that's going to be the extra kick to maybe even get them a first-round upset, depending on where they fall in the seating. It's just I can't trust Rudy Gobert. I can't trust Carl Anthony Towns' injuries the last couple of weeks. And then I think that they not necessarily got worse because obviously the trade was to lighten up some of their contracts and, you know, I guess like alleviate some other things. I think that uh, it is, that addition to Mike Conley, it, it did not help the team. I thought that the chemistry with what he had with Rudy in Utah for the last two, three seasons would have helped. In reality, Mike Conley has not been playing well at all. And I think when your point guard is playing at that rate, and you're already down a superstar, that puts all the pressure in the world on Anthony Edwards. And I don't know if he's going to be able to shoulder that all the way through the playoffs. Well, you know, those are some decent points. The only thing for me is, you know, when it comes to Zion with the Pelicans, you know, even if he were to come back ready to go, is he going to be able to stay healthy? That's true. Because the one thing that has lingered throughout Zion's career are these nagging injuries. And sometimes it takes a couple of weeks for him to recover. Obviously the foot issue that he was dealing with a couple of years back, Kev, we even talked about this a couple of years ago where we thought it was technically career threatening based on just him not being able to rehab from that properly. And it wasn't because of the protocol that he was doing. I think a lot of the times we were just focusing on his weight and all of the force that comes down from him jumping up and down all the time. It definitely puts a lot of stress on that already injured foot. But when it comes to him currently, it just always seems that he's just fighting the injury bug. It's almost kind of very similar to what happened with Joel Embiid early in his career. It seems like injuries really kind of plagued Joel early on. And then once Joel was finally able to stay healthy for a consistent period of time, he just absolutely took over. And I think Zion may kind of have a similar type of track with Joel in that regard. It's just... I have to see more from him consistently just to be able to stay healthy. And I know it's cliche, but it is true. The best ability is availability. And unfortunately for Zion, that hasn't been the case early on. But Kev, when he's on the court, he's dynamite. He's an instant playmaker. It's, it's night and, and day difference. I mean, it, I, it, don't get me wrong. Like, I would say the Pelicans have a very good shot to still make the playoffs without Zion. To me, if Zion's not on the court, it doesn't guarantee it. 
if he is and he's able to stay consistently healthy, I think it all but guarantees them a spot. And because he's not healthy right now, that's why I was leaning a little bit more to the Timberwolves. And you know, the Timberwolves have been consistent this year. Are, are they the best team in the Western Conference? No. But they do have a decent rotation with what they have at their disposal right now. And we'll see what happens with Mike Conley going into the fold. Could he potentially help them out? Maybe space the floor for some other guys for Anthony Edwards to pop off, make some shots. Maybe give J.D. McDaniels some looks. Who knows? But that's the reason why I was going a little bit more with the T-Wolves. But it's not as if I don't understand where you were coming from with the Pelicans. But it's just, it's a Zion part. It's a huge yeah. factor to me. It's it's live or die with Zion right now. So it's a, a complicated situation in New Orleans, to say the least. But uh, definitely don't want to harp too much on this. Obviously, we still have some other things to talk about. And uh, we are going to transition over into the NFL. So there is some news in the coaching world. Um, and that is going to be the former Chiefs offensive coordinator, Eric Bieniemy has accepted a job laterally, which we'll get into in a second, which makes no sense to Kyle or myself. Uh, he goes to the Washington Commanders. So, I mean, there are some narratives here that people are saying that, you know, there's he wants to be able to prove himself that the success of the Chiefs wasn't just solely because of Patrick Mahomes or Andy Reid. He wants to be kind of attached to that. You know, like, I helped contribute to this potential dynasty. And he potentially wants to show, like, hey, if I leave, they may not have as successful of an offense as they used to. And on the flip side to that, he wants to be able to turn Washington around and show like, hey, I'm brilliant enough on this offensive side to say, I was able to change this offense. I was able to improve this system, turn it around and assist Juan Rivera and the struggling team that has been the commanders over the last couple of years. So, I mean, Kyle, to kick this one your way, what are your thoughts on Eric Bieniemy becoming the OC for the commanders? Well, when it comes to Eric Bieniemy. I'm of the mindset that he's worthy enough to be a head coach in the NFL. But I think in this case, he's taking this lateral movement to become the offensive coordinator for the commanders to separate himself from what he did with the Chiefs. And the way that I see it, I think that he is just as critical to to the success of what the Chiefs have had for the last four to five years similar in regard to Andy Reid because you know obviously Andy Reid is a fantastic offensive mind in the NFL as a head coach and obviously Patrick Mahomes has had major success as an NFL quarterback so far in his career but as far as I see it Eric Bieniemy was just as responsible for their success in KC as those two guys as I previously previously mentioned but Maybe there were some NFL front offices that weren't convinced. Maybe they were thinking it was mostly predicated on Andy Reid being the offensive genius that he is as a head coach and Patrick just absolutely taking over. So, you know, the way that I see it is that I think Eric may have gotten a little bit of the shaft there uh, simply just because of the association aspect of it. Maybe they thought that he was third fiddle to Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes. But this is an opportunity for him to take advantage of. Because when it comes to the Commanders, the Commanders, compared to some other NFL teams, are not bad. They finished at an 8-8-1 record. And they had some chances. They had some opportunities to potentially make the playoffs this year. They just fell a little bit short in that regard. 
And the way that I see it with Eric taking this opportunity in Washington, it's an opportunity to show to the world, I could be an NFL head coach by basically turning around this offense with what the Washington Commanders have at their disposal. And let's face it, Kev, the quarterback situation in Washington has been in flux for the last couple of years. They've tried multiple options at the quarterback position. Carson Wentz, Taylor Heineke, Sam Howell have all gotten cracks at the quarterback position. And there just really hasn't been a consistent player to take the reins and say, no, I'm the quarterback of this team. And that's the way that it's going to be. And I think going into this offseason, I think Eric is going to look at the instability at the quarterback situation and try to stabilize that as quick as possible to try to get a well-defined number one option at the quarterback position and make sure that it stands pat for the foreseeable future. Because I think if they're able to fix that part of the offense, I think there's a very good chance that the commander's offense can flourish pretty well here. Because when you look at this offense, just on paper, they have some playmakers. And the running back group, you got Brian Robinson Jr., you got Antonio Gibson, you got J.D. McKissick. For those three running backs, that's a decent running back core to work with. And then when you look at the receivers, you've got Terry McLaurin, you've got uh, Dotson, you've got Curtis Samuel, and then you've got Logan Thomas as your tight end option. This is a decent offense to work with when it comes to their player personnel. But I think this is a situation where Eric can look at the situation that Washington has in front of them and make the most of it to potentially even make the playoffs next year. And the way that I see it is, I think if Eric can lead the offense to, let's say, not top 10, but let's say he gets them 11th, 12th, maybe the 13th best offense in the NFL, maybe front offices will finally wake up to the point of, oh, maybe this guy is actually a head coach. Maybe he's actually what he said he was in some of those head coaching interviews that he was getting over the last couple of years. You know, this is an opportunity for him to really showcase to the world, even though I think it's ridiculous because Casey's won multiple Super Bowls as his tenure as the offensive coordinator for KC. And I think if he does it well in Washington, I think it will all but guarantee him winning a Super Bowl, not winning a Super Bowl, uh, winning a head coaching job down the line. And, and, that, and, and then really at that point, you know, he would be in control of things. Now, that's not going to be the case. Like, he's going to be the OC in Washington. He's not going to be the head coach in Washington unless Ron Rivera loses his job. But overall, it, this is a lateral movement for him, even though that I think he shouldn't be in the situation to begin with. I think that he should be a head coach. But I think if he plays his cards well here and he puts the commander's offense into a good situation moving forward, I think it will all but ensure that he'll get a head coaching job probably within the next two to three years. I'll just leave it at that. So this, to me, is not only the tale of two halves, a double-edged sword, it's also a high-risk, high-reward situation. Kyle already alluded all the points, right? If you know he really wanted a head coaching job, this is a good way to prove his worth. It's a good way to prove his value. It's a good way to separate himself from the narrative of, they won because of Andy Reid and Pat Mahomes, not because of Eric Bieniemy. Uh, I think it's kind of stupid because as the OC, you have a lot of input in the offense. Yes, Patrick Mahomes is probably the greatest talent at the quarterback position we've seen in 30, 40 years in the NFL. Yes, Andy Reid is one of the better coaches that have come through over the last 30, 40 years in the NFL. 
but that has to focalize and come through the offensive coordinator. That's why he's there. He is there to coordinate, organize, and structure the offense. And there were moments in which the Chiefs looked unbeatable. They were changing personnel. They took a lull and, and, and didn't win a Super Bowl for two years. And they come back with a different team to an extent. And and they find a way. You know, they had a difference in, in the running back position. They had Pacheco. They had McKinnon. They lost Tyreek Hill. They lost Nicole Hardman. They, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like, there was just so many changes to that offense. They were going up against the league's best pass rush defense in this past Super Bowl. And the Chiefs still found a way to win. A lot of that has to do with the success of this offense, which was in part led by the enemy. So for him to not have a coaching job, a head coaching job right now, I agree with Kyle completely. It's crazy that he got the short end of the stick there. Now, to flip it onto the negative side, Washington has been quite a quarterback graveyard over the last couple of years. Kyle already went down a few of them, so I'm not going to repeat it, but we all know that this league is is live and die by the quarterback position. If you don't have a quarterback, you're not going to win games. You're not going to go to the playoffs. At least you're not going to be able to win in the playoffs if you happen to scrape by into a postseason berth because it's just it, you have to be able to score points, and if you don't have a quarterback to do that, lead the team and minimize turnovers, it's just not going to work. What I'm trying to get at is here, Sam Howell has one career start under his belt. He was a rookie last season. Washington, before they hired Biennemi, said that to start training camp, Howell is going to be getting first-team quarterback reps, and he's going to have to earn that starter position come week one. We have no idea what Washington's going to be doing, right? Now you have, on the other side, on the political side, Washington's ownership is up in shambles with you know Snyder selling the team and all the narratives with the stadium being out of whack and all these different things, right? So like Ron Rivera has been in and out of the media with his comments about Carson Wentz, and he was on the hot seat, Then Taylor Heineke got them on a five, six-game win streak. Then they started losing, then Carson Wentz comes back. It's just an endless circle of just nonsense with them. And for him to now put his name on an already tainted organization with everything going on, if he's not able to correct that, like if it's beyond his powers, like if it's beyond his capability... I think that this is going to ruin his chances at getting a head coaching job because regardless if Kansas City continues to win or not, he is now going to be forever attached to the dumpster fire that is the commanders. Whether or not that's quarterback injuries, players aren't able to effectively run the offense efficiently if there's problems with him and Ron Rivera. Again, the narratives are endless with the potential of issues. You stay in Kansas City, you have the obvious advantage at competing for Super Bowls and eventually you will get selected as a head coach because you're going to be attached to success. You're going to be attached to a winning culture. You're going to be attached to a dynasty. And yes, he has had interviews over the last couple of years since they started winning in this culture, but he has not been selected. I think you leaving and putting all your eggs in this basket in in Washington can prove to be a very, very bad risk because if it fails, you're going to look like an idiot for leaving the greatest team that football has seen since the Patriots in terms of consistently getting into not only the Super Bowl, AFC Championship appearances, MVPs for the quarterback, the accolades, yada, 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 and so on and so forth for what I'm getting at. I hope for Biennemi's sake that he is able to turn it around, but with a one-start experienced quarterback, a journeyman backup quarterback in Heineke, and not a lot of capital around outside of the receiver core and maybe the defensive line, there are some deeper-rooted issues for the commanders that he not he may not be able to salvage. Yeah, it's just, you know, 
when it comes to Washington, I mean, they finished eight eight and one. Like this is not what I would consider a dumpster fire of a team, just no, from no, no, no. just from a regular season. Now, when it comes to ownership, that now that's a dumpster fire. That's been a dumpster fire over the last couple of years. I mean, really, for as long as I remember the Commanders or the Redskins as the Redskins as they were formerly known as, it's just I think that. Like you said, I I think it was a good point that you brought up about there's definitely a risk associated with this just because, let's face it, like you said, if it fails, then he's going to be forever attached to that. It, it It's a risk. There, there's no doubt about it. it see, for me, he, he could have played it like this. If he wasn't getting head coaching jobs um, based on the interviews that he had a couple years ago, that was despite being successful in Casey. Let's say hypothetically he just played it out as their OC in Casey for the next couple of years, and they've been able to maintain their level of success. I think it would have been undeniable at that point that Eric would be getting a, a head coaching job. That's what I'm saying, bro. Like, it's, why leave championship potential uh, for a project rebuild potential? You know well, what I'm saying? And, you know, and that's the thing. It's like when I look at his situation compared to some other offensive coordinators, I, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you one here. When, when Josh McDaniels was the offensive coordinator for the Patriots from 2013 to basically 2020, I mean, he was set. He spent another seven years as their offensive coordinator in New England, and that was his second stint being the offensive coordinator in New England. You know, you look at Eric. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head how long Eric's been the offensive coordinator for the Chiefs, but I know it's been for the last couple of years. Ever really since Pat's been the starting quarterback, Eric's been their offensive coordinator, and. Who knows? Like, had he stayed there for a couple more years, got a, maybe another Super Bowl on his resume, you know, maybe then he would have probably accepted a head coaching job somewhere else if he was actually one of the candidates to get a head coaching job. It's just, I find it kind of crazy that he's just not a head coach already. Because, I mean, if you were to look at any offensive coordinator in the NFL with the success that he's had in his tenure with KC, more than likely most offensive coordinator candidates would have already landed a head coaching job. So he was the OC from 2018 all the way up until last year, but he has coached for the chiefs as their running backs coach from 2013 all the way to 2017. So he's been a part of the chiefs organization for a decade. Yeah. For 10 years. And usually that's how it goes. A lot of these guys will, will kind of bounce around like, some guys might be like an offensive assistant, then they'll be a positional coach, and then they'll be the OC, and, and then so on and so forth. So, now the fact that he spent ten years within Casey's coaching staff that that doesn't surprise me. No, I, the part that surprises me is that you look at the resume that he's built so far in his relatively short career as an offensive coordinator, and the fact that he d- wasn't able to land a head coaching job. It, it kind of raises some eyebrows. Maybe he didn't Crazy. interview well in the interviews. Maybe just front offices weren't really connecting with what he had as a vision for the offense or for the team as a whole when he was pitching it to them. So, I, you know, look, look, you know, I think there's kind of like this reflexive notion that a lot of analysts may have and say, oh, well, this is front offices being incompetent. And that definitely is the case. 
Or it could just be that the front offices just weren't buying what he was trying to bring in. You know, I, I don't really know. I don't know the internal conversations that both, you know, Eric Bieniemy had and the front offices that he interviewed with had. It's just, obviously the result is he didn't land the head coaching jobs. And then obviously it's kind of a figure out how that didn't happen or how he wasn't able to land a head coaching job. But, you know, as far as I could tell, I think with him going to Washington now, and if he's able to turn this offense around and make it successful, I think he'll finally kind of break away from that KC attachment and show that he's definitely head coaching material as far as I see it. So we'll, we'll, but, we'll see what happens in that regard. So, I mean, we do have to move on to the remainder of the NFL topics yep. that we have, which are going to be our top three needs or top needs for the next two teams. So, Kyle, what do we have? Yep. So uh, we're going to focus on two teams that got knocked out of the divisional round in last year's playoffs. Uh, we'll start things off in the NFC East. We will first talk about the New York Giants. Uh, the New York Giants had a successful year. This was Brian Dable's first year as a head coach. He led them to, I believe, a 9-7-1 record. Uh, they were able to get a pretty big win on the road against the Minnesota Vikings in the wild card round. Wasn't really the most surprising win because a lot of people had already kind of penned in the Vikings to be a fraud, and they kind of proved that based on what the Giants did to them because Dan Jones was like Tom Brady out there covering up that Vikings defense. But their luck ran out after that. They got absolutely obliterated by the Eagles in a divisional round. It was not a competitive game whatsoever. But I will say, just to kind of look at it from a bigger perspective, the Giants were actually relevant this year. Uh, they kind of fell off a little bit in the second half of the year compared to the first half. But nonetheless, the Giants are a team on the rise. Playoff appearances, nothing to shrug off as nothing. And you know, with the Giants going into another year with Brian Dable at the helm, there are definitely going to be some things that he's going to focus on to try to make this team more competitive going into next season. So, Kev, to get this one to you, what do you think are some of the things that the Giants need to improve upon this offseason? So there are a couple of different places that I can really focus on, right? Like I have a long list here of things that I believe that the Giants need to do in order to excel past what they had gone through this season. And first, I have to start with, again, I'm not doing anything in a particular order. It has to be the wide receiver core. Unfortunately, they were plagued with injuries to almost every single starting wide receiver from one, I think, all the way down to even fourth string. You had Kenny Galladay in and out of the lineup, and he has not produced since he signed in New York. He's got to go. You had their number one pick from the draft in Wendell Robinson, who tore his ACL, or their number one wide receiver pick. He did not pan out. You had Sterling Shepard tear his ACL again. Darius Slayton was in and out of the lineup. I mean, again, when it comes to the unfortunate injury bug that the Giants had, specifically in the wide receiver room, that is going to be where you need to specifically focus on getting additional depth. Now, whether or not Sterling Shepard comes back healthy, I don't know. Whether or not you release Kenny Galladay or, trying to find a, or try and find a trade suitor, I have no idea. But you had people stepping up like Richie James Jr. You obviously had people like Isaiah Hodgins step up and have big games in the playoffs. But overall, I think the Giants definitely need to address the wide receiver room. Number two, I think you're going to have to have some interior offensive line depth. You have Andrew Thomas at the left tackle for Daniel Jones' blind spot. But other than that, the interior protection had some slip-ups this this this, uh, this season. And Daniel Jones was forced to scramble in a lot of times. And, of course, he may have 
decreased his turnover margin. But in terms of interior pressures, the Giants look to really break down from the center and the guard positions. I know Mark Mark Glowinski came from the Colts, but on specifically the left side, left guard and the center position, they weren't really able to protect a lot. I would kind of focus on building up that offensive line because he is a mobile quarterback and it looks like they're going to extend him for the future. Um, you are definitely going to need to bolster that up as well as help Saquon Barkley have those bigger gaps and bigger holes um, to go into the second level of a defense. So I would say that the offensive line is going to be next for me. And then maybe a, a potential third one for me. I'm kind of teetering between two here, whether that's linebacker depth, cornerback depth, or even just kind of focalizing on re-signing Saquon Barkley because of how important he is to this offense. And without him, they're kind of mediocre because, again, that the wide receiver room was kind of bad. They don't necessarily have a big tight end, which, again, that could technically be another highlighted position because they had a rookie, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, his name was Bellinger, Daniel Bellinger. That showed flashes and potential, but... It wasn't necessarily something to be like, that's a tight end that's going to come out there and make a statement for you. So like I said, the Giants have a lot of different positions that I can go for. But my two biggest ones, got to be offensive line depth, specifically internally in, on the interior, and then uh, additive resources uh, within the wide receiver core. And Kevin, there's really only one more thing that I could probably hit with the Giants, and you kind of alluded to it already. What's going to happen with D Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley? And we even looked at some of the reports initially about the extension that Daniel Jones could be getting. And we were seeing that he could get probably somewhere between, what, 35 to $40 million a year with his contract extension. And for me, this is a huge point of contention for me. And it has a lot to do with get Daniel Jones signed, but get him signed for the right number to still make the team flexible to be able to improve some parts of the offense. Because as far as I see it, Kev, a lot of the issues with the Giants are mostly predicated on the offensive side of the ball. Defensively, I think they got some pretty good studs on that side of the field. Look, when you got Dexter Lawrence, you got Leonard Williams, you got a Dory Jackson, like that's a good core of defensive players to, to work with at their disposal. And I'm of the mindset that the Giants have a really good defense, and that's the reason why they were so competitive this year. But the offense definitely needs to step up. And to me, that's where a lot of the focus is paid with Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. Because it is true that Daniel Jones had what I would consider his best year this year throughout his entire professional career. One of the things that Kevin alluded to was the amount of turnovers uh, that he had this year compared to years past. It was definitely lower, and he's definitely progressing in that regard because he was just an absolute turnover machine in the first couple of years as a professional quarterback. And I think when it comes to contract negotiations, they have to get that number right because if they overpay for Daniel Jones, that's not a good look. Daniel Jones is what I would consider an average quarterback. And in some games, he could play to an above average standard. So I'm not of the mindset that Daniel Jones should be getting 40 to like $40 million a year. I just don't think that it's worth that investment long term, especially if you're going to be cap strapped based on that contract. And that's just Daniel Jones. We still got to contend with Saquon Barkley. And Saquon Barkley, when he's out there on the field, he's one of the most dynamic running backs in the game. And he had a relatively solid season this year. And the biggest thing with him, he was able to stay relatively healthy, which is something that has been nagging him throughout his first couple years in his career. So, you know, obviously, the main point that I want to make here is that the Giants have to be smart and try to sign both of these 
guys in Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley. But the caveat that comes along with that is they got to sign them for the right price. If they overpay for both of these guys to stay on the roster, it kind of goes to Kevin's point. They're not really going to be able to adjust this wide receiving core, which is a major issue. And when you look at their starting wide receivers on paper, Isaiah Hodgins, Darius Slayton, and Richie James, Kevin, I, I don't even know if those guys would be third string receivers on some other teams in the NFL based on what other teams have at their wide receiving course. So, you know, maybe this is something that Brian Dable is going to focus on over time and try to develop those guys internally and make them strong number two options and then maybe a number one down the line. Maybe they could get that from Wandale Robinson in a couple of years, but, you know, tearing an ACL in the first year is not a good look. So, you know, when it comes to the Giants, they do have some things to attend to. Most of them are on the offensive side of the ball, so I agree with Kev on that one. But for me, this really comes down to securing Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley for the long term. However, it has to be for the right price. And if they overpay for both of those guys to keep them on the roster, I think it's going to significantly hinder their ability to be able to bolster this wide receiving core, which is going to be a major point of concern moving forward with the Giants because this wide receiving core, I just don't think it's simply going to get it done as it's currently constructed. Like I said, there are a lot of different things you can talk about with the Giants. And I'm not saying that because they're a bad football team. I'm not saying that because they're weak in a lot of areas. But there are some position groups that you can improve just in the draft. You don't necessarily have to go out and break the bank like you tried to with Kenny Galladay. That was a free agency swing and a miss, clearly. You missed and, an understatement. And, you know, at the tight end room, you know, you you, you get another... I don't know, another option. You draft another tight end. You, you get you know a second set of hands. A tight end is a quarterback's best friend when the receivers aren't able to create separation. And with the thin receiving core, which is no one's fault, injuries happen, um, Daniel Jones can't take that next step if he doesn't have targets. So you have to increase the offense. The only reason I didn't want to really harp on the defense is because what Kyle said, their defense is the reason why they were in a lot of the games that they were this season, mm -hmm. which is why I had made a mention in passing the front four is fine. The front, yeah, four, front four is, 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 is one of the better ones in the NFL. Um, the numbers may not show up because Kayvon Thibodeau was out a couple of different times. Obviously, Leonard Williams started off slow. Like There were some differences, but when all four or five of that rotational core was available, they made some noise. You can improve the middle linebacker position for coverage purposes, for just getting an overall person that can tackle, that can lead that defense. You can go out there and draft another corner to go out there and compliment Adoree Jackson so you don't put all the pressure on him. You can go get a safety out there to help with McKinley. There's just McKinney. There's McKinney. just McKinney, excuse me. There are options to go in and just add resources to make those other position players better. But, of course, I agree with Kyle 1,000%. The defense can manage if you bring back everybody, again, hypothetically on paper, back from last year. You have to you have to make improvements on that offense to take yes. that next step to compete with high powered offenses like the Cowboys, like the freaking Eagles, just to kind of just reflect in their division. The Giants need to make that next step to go from a nine, seven and one team to a eleven and six, twelve and five to, to take that next step because we know Brian Dable has a brilliant offensive mind. I mean, he won coach of the year for a reason. 
you have to go out there and give him weapons to put Daniel Jones in a position to win. If he can maintain these turnovers at a lower rate, I think that this offense, if if brought in the right situation can be one of the better offenses in the league if he has the right opportunity. Yeah, it, when you just look at their free agent list, I mean, obviously the biggest names at the top are Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones, obviously. Those are what we already outlined. You know, obviously Sterling Shepard, the injury issues have been... I think he's um, got to walk, unfortunately. I, 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 I think so, too. I think, you know, he's 30 years this old. second time tearing what his ACL, I think. I don't know if he tore it once before. I'd have to look that up, but you know, tearing an ACL at 30 years old at the wide receiving position, you know, if it was early on in his career, it'd be one thing, but 30, you know, typically you start seeing decline in some receivers at that age, but most of the free agents that I'm seeing here are mostly predicated on the offensive side of the ball. There are some defensive free agents that they have to attend to. Uh, Tony Jefferson's one of their safeties. Uh, Julian Love is one of their safeties as well, but you know, when you look at some of these other receivers, you know, Richie James is a free agent this offseason. Uh, Matt Breida is a free agent this offseason. So he tore his Achilles. That's the one. That one's even worse. Yeah. So he wrote yeah, the Achilles one. week 15 of 2021. Oh, comes God, back for this season. Tears ACL. That's brutal. Yeah. So I, mean, he's, I think I think they got to let him go after that one. He's his, his injured history is just too much. And I feel bad for the guy because... He's putting the He's work a hard out there. Worker. Yeah. Teammates love him, everything. But I, I, I can't bank on that, you know, especially with the injury no. history. But, you know, it, it seems to me most of the free agents that they have to attend to this offseason are mostly predicated on the offensive side of the ball. And, and those are going to be the tough decisions that are going to be made uh, from the front office. So the Giants are a good team. They're a team on the rise as far as I see. I thought Brian Dable, even though that I didn't think that he should have won coach of the year. I think that he's put them in a position where they could be successful in a pretty competitive NFC East because you got to keep pace with the Eagles and the Cowboys. And the fact that they were able to make the playoffs this year indicates to me that they're moving in the right direction, but the decisions that they are going to make this offseason are either going to make their situation better or worse. And honestly, time will tell when it comes to how things are going to transpire for the Giants over the next couple of months. Yeah, I'm just looking up another statistic, but of course, I can't find it. So that'll kind of poop pool. That'll kind of push us into our next team that we're going to cover today, and that is going to be the Jacksonville Jaguars, who fell short to the defending, excuse me, to the eventual champion Kansas City Chiefs. Had a historic comeback against the Chargers in the game before, and obviously Trevor Lawrence took that next step in his career to say, "I am going to prove that I was worth the number one overall pick." Now, that could have been because of Doug Peterson. That could have been because he was held back from Urban Meyer. That could have been because the offense was finally clicking. There's a number of reasons. Next season, in my opinion, is going to show if last year was a fluke or if Trevor Lawrence really is going to take the Jacksonville Jaguars into a consistent playoff appearance, you know, year in and year out. So, Kyle... um, I know usually I kind of take the lead on a lot of these. So if you want to swing this this way, I can kind of, kind no, of give I, my thoughts. I got, I got this. Oh, okay. So Kyle, what do you think? Uh, what do you think the Jacksonville Jaguars need to do to improve for 2023? So there's a couple things. Um, I'm mostly going to predicate them on the offensive side of the ball. I'll give 
Kevin plenty to talk about the defense because I know he's got a lot to talk about on that side of Jacksonville as a team. Um, number one with me is I want to see Trevor Lawrence and uh, Doug Peterson be able to maintain their chemistry and be able to bolster and improve it going into year two as a quarterback coach duo. Because, Kev, let's face it, Trevor Lawrence had a massive jump in his second year as a quarterback compared to his rookie year. You could just tell that the offense was running more fluidly. It seemed like he had more confidence. Granted, you know, turnovers were still an issue. Obviously, we remember that Chargers game in the wild card round where he threw four interceptions in the first half. It just looked like the lights were too bright for him. And then he had this massive comeback in the second half and got the Jaguars a win over the Chargers to advance to the divisional round. And to me, that really showed the fact that, you know, Trevor had confidence in himself, but it also showed me that Doug Peterson had confidence in his quarterback to be able to make the plays that needed to be made and put the Jags in a position to win that game. So the way that I see it is the fact that the Jags made the playoffs this year already proves to me that Doug Peterson is miles better than what Urban Meyer was as their head coach. And as far as I see it, if Doug Peterson is able to still effectively lead the offense and really continue to improve the chemistry that he has with Trevor Lawrence at that quarterback spot, I think the chemistry between those two will improve over time. And I think we'll only get better as the years goes on, as long as the Jags remain successful as a franchise. So to me, that's that's one area where I want to see the Jags just focus on in the offseason. I know it doesn't get a lot of attention, but you know that quarterback-coach relationship needs to be on point. And I think where it stands right now, it's off to a good start, and I think it will get better as time goes along. Uh, number two is trying to bring back Evan Ingram into the fold. I thought Evan Ingram was one of the best-performing tight ends in the NFL last year. And the numbers indicate that. Evan Ingram had his best year statistically in his career. And granted, he had some good years when he was a member of the New York Giants before coming to the Jags. But when you look at him, he had 98 targets. He had over 60 catches, had around 750 yards receiving, and had a couple touchdowns to go along with it. And, you know, the way that I see it with the Jags offense is, is that their wide receiving core is pretty decent. And you could tell that Trevor's been able to establish good chemistry with the right wide receiving core that he has at his disposal. But I think having that option with Evan Ingram in the fold, I think it will really keep that offense fluid. And to me, I think it bolsters the offense significantly to have Evan Ingram in the fold. And if they weren't unable to, unfortunately, keep him in the fold, if he were to go to another team because he is a free agent this offseason, you know, obviously that would be a big area of need this offseason. And obviously I think the Jags would try to remedy that situation fairly quickly. But if they're able to keep Evan Ingram in the fold and sign him to a multi-year deal, man, I think that Jags offense would be able to flourish very similar to what we saw last year in some games. And I think that Evan Ingram could even top his statistical performance from this last year as well, uh, which would be quite impressive. So for me, I would simply just limit it to improve and bolster the quarterback-coach relationship in Trevor Lawrence and Doug Peterson and try to bring back... Evan Ingram into the fold for a multi-year deal. So Kev, I'll let you take the floor from here. 
Yeah, I mean, Kyle focused on the offense. Like he said, I'm going to kind of take this from a defensive perspective. Um, just to kind of give two quick points here, I think that they need to bolster the defensive line. They were, I believe, of course, now that is going to be gone. Wait, hold on one second. They were 27th in total defense allowed. They only had 35 sacks, which was 25th in the NFL. And when it comes to pressuring the quarterback, they just were not consistent enough to go out there and make plays and create turnovers, which kind of goes into my next subject. And that is going to be the next position I think they are going to need help with is going to be some secondary help, specifically in the cornerback department. Um, They were fifth worst in total yards allowed. And I believe they allowed over 4,000 yards. Kyle, you had the number in front of you, if I'm not mistaken. I can't remember what it was. But... Mm -hmm. I can, talking, well, I can pull it up. I can pull it up if yeah. you want me to. Yeah, so, please. So for the amount of passing yards that the Jaguars gave up, they were the fifth worst passing defense in the NFL. They gave up 4,055 yards. Uh, the only teams that were worse were the Raiders, the Lions, the Vikings, and the Titans. That is not the company you want to be attached to, even remotely. So for a playoff team, this is pretty embarrassing. We knew that the Vikings had a horrible defense. They're one of the worst statistical defensive teams we've seen in a long time. But for Jacksonville to have been as good as they were in the second half against the Chargers, but on paper you can see that they just were not that kind of team, you're going to need to revamp that defense. You know what you have on the offensive side with Trevor Lawrence, ETN, Peterson leading the way at the head coaching position. But when you look at that defense, you are going to need some depth rushing at, the, at rushing the passer, and you are going to need some depth at protecting um, the outsides and making sure that you are not only getting to the quarterback, but creating turnovers, and those turnovers are going to have to be led by some corners um, in the secondary. Yeah, the, the Jags overall, I think, are a team on the rise, kind of similar to what we mentioned with the Giants. Obviously, when it comes to the Jags, they're still a very relatively young team. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a major step forward to the fact that they were able to win the AFC South. That's a huge step in their favor. And I remember when we did our preseason picks last year, we were convinced that the Titans were pretty much just going to cakewalk through that division and and win the division outright. That didn't happen. Oh. And, uh, you know, to me, I, I actually remember the last game of the year it was in Jacksonville. Jags playing the Titans. Mind you, the Titans were playing Josh Dobbs at the quarterback position. So the Titans were already injured to begin with. And I think Derrick Henry, that was his first game back in like two months. And unfortunately, you know, for the Titans, they fell short. But the Jags really took that game by storm. And the defense is really what got them that win to put them into the position to even make the playoffs. And then, you know, even in that wild card game, and the, the defense, I can't even really say the defense played terrible in that game simply just because the, their offense was spotting their defense within like their own 25 to 30 yard line. So it's like, you're going to give up points regardless. But in that second half, that Jags defense kept them in it against the Chargers. And it was enough to win them that game to get to the divisional round. So you know, the Jags, I think they're still going through some growing pains. They're still a relatively young team and you know, there's no guarantee that they're going to be able to replicate their success like they did this past season. But I think it's more likely than not that they could get back to the playoffs next year. They they may even be my preseason pick uh, to win the division next year for the AFC South with the way that things are trending in that division. So, you know, obviously 
we have a lot of time. It's February, and the season won't start ramping up until late August, early September anyway, so we have a long time to go. But I think the Jags, from an organizational perspective, I think they could see some potential. And I think at this point, compared to where they were a year, year and a half ago, they will take that any day of the week. Not much they can complain about, to be honest, from that jump, from that that, that, that switch that they had. Literally, it was like a night and day difference. So that was, that was a nightmare that they had to deal with with Urban, kudos Urban Meyer. To, uh, kudos to Doug Peterson sincerely for, for changing that around. You know, obviously, when you have a quarterback like Trevor Lawrence with all the hype and everything, you don't want to see him fail or kind of like, you know, like flame out. So with, with Doug helping him advance and change, um, as bad as it is for my division... Obviously, I knew the second they drafted him, it, it was going to be a pain in the ass for us moving forward. So we, we won't get into my team's problems and needs. Eventually, at some point down the line, we will. But uh, yeah, no, Jackson was going to be good for a while if they can just make some some key tweaks on that defensive side. And of course, retain some offensive pieces. And I think that they'll be a, a team to reckon with for a little bit. And, and you know, before we wrap this up, I, you don't have to go to a huge diatribe or anything like that. What do you think about the Colts new head coach? Colts head coach Shane Steichen Steichen yeah the new head coach yep and Shane well I mean um I'm concerned that it's a six-year deal I I don't think I've ever seen a deal that long for a first-time head coach it seems a little lengthy I know John Gruden Um, got a 10-year deal but he wasn't a first-time coach been to a couple Super Bowls some hardware you know obviously John Gruden even that was known even that was a crazy that was a crazy deal though 100% no doubt about it so um, I'm, I'm excited to see what Shane does. I'm curious to see what he decides to do in the draft. Obviously, that is another month and a half, if not two months away. So whether that's Stroud, Levis, Bryce Young, rumors of us trading up for the number one overall pick with the Bears, I have no idea what's going to go on. But in terms of the offense as a whole, I mean, we have too many needs right now, too many holes, too many issues to really focus solely on what he's going to be able to do for us. I think it's going to be a tall task for him to kind of go in there and make a change. I think we may struggle for the first two years just because we have a lot of looming issues. But um, from what I've heard, what I've seen, what I've you know heard and seen him say uh, press conference-wise, he looks to be a pretty stand-up guy. Eagles fans love him. I mean, he's well-known in the NFL. He coached Justin Herbert, Phillip Rivers, obviously now Jalen Hurts. So he is responsible for working with some talented quarterbacks. It's just a matter of who we end up getting in the quarterback room to start. And then, of course, how we can kind of add some additional weapons. But um, I think no matter who we hired, it was going to be a tall task, no matter what. So I hope he's up for the challenge. I think you guys are going to be ballsy, and I think you guys are going to go for Stroud. And I, I think a Hopefully. part of yeah, I, like I, I think the reason why is I think, you know, granted, I wouldn't say like CJ Stroud is as mobile as Jalen. Jalen is definitely a more mobile quarterback than CJ. But I think that he's a good coach to kind of transition those those college quarterbacks into the NFL smoothly. He, he was able to do that with Jalen pretty effectively. And Herbert. And, uh, so, you know, the fact that he's, he has that underneath his belt. And I think if you put potentially CJ Stroud in a position with the Colts, obviously the Colts aren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. You know that full well. But I think that down the line, I think, you know, you can round the corner. And obviously when it comes to the Colts, the biggest need is the quarterback. 
I, I, I granted, there are a lot of issues when it comes to the Colts offense, but would you say that that is the most pressing issue at the moment right now? Needed it since Andrew, no doubt about it. The most surprising one is going to be the fact that we need to rebuild an offensive line that was just the most dominant line two, three years ago. So that's going to be a little bit of a challenge as well. But overall, I, I, I think his mindset, how he's going to be able to coach no matter who gets drafted is going to be pivotal because, again, he has shown success with younger quarterbacks and he has a very good relationship with Phillip Rivers, who's going to go down as a Hall of Famer, in my opinion. I think that that's a pretty good resume to have three quarterbacks like that, one being a lot older, a vet, and then, of course, two up-and-coming quarterbacks that are regarded as some of the better young quarterbacks in the NFL. I mean, I mean for God's sakes, Jalen Hurts just went to a Super Bowl and outplayed Patrick Mahomes, in my opinion, and I know some people share that opinion with me as well outside of the fumble. So it really just depends on the pieces we surround our drafted quarterback with and what we're able to do with the offensive line, whether that's a correction, redrafting, free agency. I have no concept. I don't know what's in the mind of Chris Ballard, but we know that Shane is an offensive-minded head coach. That is the issue that we have is the offense. The defense is always the ones keeping us in games. And, of course, we still have Gus Bradley leading that side of the ball. So we will see how that works. And if I remember correctly, I think you guys have a little bit of cap space to work with. Not, I mean, not Gus, like Gus a smidge. Yeah, not a lot compared to some other teams. I think there's like, I think if I was, I I think I actually had this pulled up. You guys will have like ninety four million dollars in the Bears to work with, but no, I think some people are going to have to restructure some contracts. I know that Darius and Quentin both signed extensions last year, but based on the performances that they both had last year, especially with Darius being hurt and Quentin being bullied in multiple occasions, that's um, an understatement, bro. If, if we are going to attract free agents, if we are going to get wide receiver help and, and, and a litany of other pieces that we need, um, players are going to have to start being selfless. And if that's not going to be an option, especially with JT coming up for a contract extension more than likely next season, it's we're going to be in some deep dookie if we don't start making some changes here. So again, Ballard has always been a great drafter. I don't have issues with a lot of his picks. Most of his picks have been hits and gems. So we'll see what happens in the draft. It's just he always struggles when it comes to free agency. I know this turned into a cult segment. I didn't need to, but no, I know. Kyle brought it up, and it kind of just went down that path. It was a tangent so, moment. We should get a button. So, like, tangent coming. So so just to round this out, cautiously optimistic? Yes. Okay. To put it lightly, yes. We'll, we'll leave it at that. And honestly, I'll take that any day because I know when it comes to the Colts, it's usually like just dread and misery with that team with you. So the fact Badly. that we're the fact that we're cautiously optimistic, I'm taking that and running with it, bro. I, check, please. It may change tomorrow. It may change tomorrow. We'll see. Yeah, well, you know, Jeff Saturday's no longer the head coach, so I know that brings a little bit of a I little bit better. of joy to your heart. Just a little I might bit. be able to sleep well tonight. You know, maybe. So do so do I. But you know, my Patriots suck too. So <laughs> is what it is. But uh, no, Kev, that pretty much. Uh, Rounds it out for what we had on the slate. Is there uh, anything else that you wanted to go over before we wrap this up? No, man, that's that's it. Um, yeah, no, I, was, I, I thought I had something, but I don't. I mean, guys, it's uh, a little later on this side. We, we know that we have a lot of content to cover over the next couple of weeks. Now that the All-Star game is over in the NBA, we have a lot of NBA content that's going to be flowing. Playoffs are coming up in a few weeks, excuse me, a few months. So we definitely have a lot to pay attention to. 
And then, of course, like we talked about with the NFL, we're going to have plenty of those what teams need to improve leading up into the draft, leading up into free agency and the offseason. A lot, a lot, a lot of stuff is coming. Baseball season is literally, I think, a week away in terms of um, spring training, I believe, starts this week. I think so the players showed up. I think, traffic. I think actually the players showed up. I think they're starting to arrive. I know it was pitchers and catchers last week. Um, but no, I, I think actual, you know, the rest of the team is now showing up for spring training. So exactly. So like up. I said, we we got we got a lot of stuff to talk about. All of our channels in terms of social media are doing great. I feel like I say this every week, but it's it's a good thing to have to be able to communicate with the community that follows us as religiously as you guys do. Um, and I feel like it's a good thing to kind of just remind ourselves that we're putting in the work. We know what we're doing. You guys see the changes. So again, thank you. However, you guys support us: audio, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. And uh, you know. We'll keep uh, we'll keep it up, and hopefully we'll be able to just continue to build off of it. Yeah, and and like Kev said, we just appreciate the support wherever we can get it, whether that's YouTube, audio platforms, social media accounts like Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Uh, we hope that we get that continued support from you guys. And um, like I said, I just appreciate it. I know Kev does, and uh, just stay tuned. But but we have. In the full for you guys. It's going to be pretty busy from here on out for the next couple of months. So, Kev, with that said, uh, let's wrap this up. It's called a night. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you guys take it easy, all right? Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B, and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric Welcome to Ringside with Ray and Prince. My name is Ray Leonard Jr. Oh, that's my name is Prince Daniels Jr. On this show, we come to humanize athletes, entertainers, business executives. We're going to see what makes them tick. Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Pacific time on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you there. Peace and power. Electric acid.